five weeks um, left in March. Um, that's kind of sad uh, to me. Um, thank you, Lindsay. Um, but Mark has become a, a dear uh, friend of mine, and I, and I hope um, you too. Um, and um, I hope you feel accomplished that we're going to have gotten through a whole book of the Bible, a long one, verse by verse, um, in, well, over a year. Um, so I hope you feel accomplished. Uh, I hope you love Mark. Um, I'm, I'm going to miss him. But we're at the end. We've got five weeks left. Uh, we are now in the last 12 hours of the life of Jesus. It is, it is Friday. It is sometime after midnight, probably around um, 1 or 2 in the morning. Last week, we saw Jesus. He had just celebrated um, the Passover um, supper with his disciples. We saw him, in the process, transform that supper. He redefined it. He explained that it was ultimately about him and what he had come to do. And then, in the process, he instituted the Lord's Supper, a celebration, a memorial um, for us to um, remember what he has done um, for us. And we closed last time with Jesus and the disciples leaving the upper room, exiting Jerusalem, and heading to the Mount of Olives. And it was there that he informed the remaining 11, Judas has left, he informs there the remaining 11 that they were all going to abandon him. And each one of them adamantly um, denies it. And this morning, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And today, honestly, we come to one of the, the holiest and most solemn places in all of Scripture. I confess to you that I have a great weight and great burden um, on my heart when it comes to this text. Uh, today, we are in Gethsemane, which is one of the, the, the most deeply mysterious and moving accounts in all of the Bible. Right, this morning, we are going to get to witness Jesus as we have never seen Jesus before and as we will not see him again. I love jokes and I love little funny stories. Uh, I think humor is a great rhetorical device, but I just I couldn't, I couldn't get it in um, to this sermon. The, the tone of this passage just does not um, call for it. We've seen that the theme of Mark chapter 14, the longest chapter in the book, is the abandonment of Jesus. And our passage this morning is a step-by-step -step progression into complete isolation. He first is going to leave behind eight of the disciples. Then he's going to leave behind three of the disciples. All the way back in Mark 3.14, he had told the disciples and called them for the specific reason that they might be with him. And here they all utterly fail um, to be with him. So here we're going to see him alone in the garden by himself, crying out to God. And it is here for the very first time that Jesus experiences complete isolation. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has forever lived in perfect communion with God, experiences something here for the very first time. Silence. Jesus is utterly alone, as no one in all of history has ever been alone. And as we're going to see, it devastates him. This, this morning, is a suffering that we cannot begin to understand or comprehend. This is a suffering the likes of which none of us will come close to ever experiencing. Gethsemane gives us the clearest picture of how much our salvation costs God. Right, this passage right here should make it painfully um, and uncomfortably clear to us how serious our sin is and how salvation, though free to us, was not free to God. Right, this, 
And this isn't a game, right? What we're doing here. This isn't a social club. This isn't something that we just do for an hour once a week. This cannot just be something we do on the side. As we're going to see, we cannot just be mildly interested in Jesus, right? This is a battle, right? This is serious. This is life or death that is happening here in the garden. Eternity is on the line. And this, this little passage gives us this tiniest little taste of what Jesus went through for us. And in these verses, we find fulfilled the two halves of the prophecy we just read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want to take our cue and our outline this morning from that verse. We're going to flip it and do it in the reverse order. I want to examine Jesus as portrayed here as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then we're going to see him despised and rejected by men. But finally, I want to close by, by, by drawing out some critical applications um, from this text. Because it is here in the garden that I think that the problem of evil is answered. It is here in the garden where you can find the resources that you need to face the difficulty and the suffering that you are going to encounter. Doubt and death and whatever you're going to experience, right? It is because Jesus is the first two things, the man of sorrows and despised and rejected by men, that he is also then our third thing. He is the solution to suffering, right? So look down in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read starting in verse 32. You can just follow along. This is God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. Let's pray before we begin. Father, I um, confess that I am completely insufficient um, to handle this text um, well, um, Lord. I 
I come humbly, I come asking for your spirit and your assistance, um, Lord. I just pray that you would open this up um, to us. Father, give us a hint, a taste of the unimaginable suffering that happens in these verses, and those, that, that suffering that happens um, for us, um, Lord. I ask that you would move and you would use this time. Father, show us um, Jesus Christ and what it is that he has done um, for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, so Jesus, he's left Jerusalem, he's on his way to the Mount of Olives, but this time, remember, he's been staying outside of the city in Bethany. Well, this time he doesn't make it all the way back. They make it about halfway, they stop in a place on the slope of the mountain called Gethsemane. And in Hebrew, that word simply means olive press. Right? This is kind of an olive tree, little garden area. And this garden was probably owned uh, by a follower of Jesus. And John 18, 2 implies that this may have kind of been a regular meeting and hanging out place uh, for them. And this would make sense because Judas knows exactly where to find them. Right? They had used this garden before. And he gets there, he leaves behind the age. Remember, he also takes his, his core three guys with him. He leaves behind the age. He says, sit here while I pray. And again, now he goes to pray. And this is only one of the three times in the entire book where Jesus goes alone to pray. Right? Remember, each time we saw it is at a pivotal moment, a time of decision and crisis in his ministry. And this is the most critical and traumatic of those times. So he takes Peter, James, and John with him further into the garden, and then he begins, it says. It starts, right? Something wasn't happening, and then something begins to happen. He begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. And we get a, a shocking um, confession from the lips of Jesus. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And quite honestly, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, it, it's difficult maybe to see how Jesus could be called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But here, in these verses, it all comes painfully flooding out. And Mark's account of this scene, if you go read the others, is by far the darkest and the grimmest. His account of Jesus' time in the garden is almost scandalous. One commentator I was reading writes that Christians, both ancient and modern, have often tended to find this passage offensive and distasteful. Why? Because Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Hasn't that been the whole point we've said of the Gospel of Mark? It's the very first verse, right? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the case that Mark is making. Right? He has up to this point been coolly and calmly predicting his coming betrayal, suffering, and death. He's done it three times now. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. His entire life has been building to this moment. And up until this point, we have witnessed only steely resolution and determination from Jesus. And some are very uncomfortable with the side of Jesus that is displayed here. The language that Mark uses is very emotional. It is very intense. The Greek translated greatly distressed. It basically means to be, it means to be shocked. It means to be astonished. Your King James might say he was sore amazed. He saw something that caught him off guard. Something that he was not seeing before. But Mark, up until this point, has portrayed Jesus as utterly unflappable. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing shocks or unsettles him. But here in this garden on that early Friday morning, something happens that shakes him to the core. And this, this is honestly a little bit unsettling to us. Because think about it. 
We have all kinds of accounts of the deaths of various ancient people. And almost every single one of them confront their imminent death much better than Jesus does here. They were all generally very calm and very unconcerned about what was coming. The great Greek philosopher Socrates is a great example of this. Plato was a pupil of Socrates, and he writes kind of a first-hand account um, witnessing um, Plato's death. Plato was sentenced to death in Athens for denying the gods and for corrupting the youth about 400 years before Jesus. And his execution, his penalty was he had to drink a cup a goblet full of hemlock. And hemlock is just a, a poison that kind of, it slowly attacks your nervous system. It starts at the feet, slowly works itself up until you're then just all of a sudden dead. Well, his student Plato tells us about kind of the death and what was going on. And it's really fascinating because Socrates, at least how he was portrayed, was completely calm. Right? He was cracking jokes um, part of the time. He was kind of, he was running through some philosophy, pontificating about the immortality of the soul and how he was about to be free and what was going to happen. Over, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, over here, um, on one of the upper floors, there's a very famous painting that is called The Death of Socrates. The original is just over there across the river. It's a beautiful um, Renaissance painting, and everyone around Socrates is just Weeping, even though the executioner, the one with the cup, has got his head turned away. He's weeping. He's hanging the cup. But Socrates is just calm and cool, and he happily drains the cup to the last drop. After drinking it, he, he chastises his friends. Plato writes that he said, "You are strange fellows. What is wrong with you? I sent the women away for this very purpose to stop their creating such a scene. I've heard that one should die in silence. So please be quiet." and keep control of yourselves. He walked around a few times, cracked a few jokes, laid down, and his last words to his best friend was that he had just remembered that he owed someone a chicken, and he wanted him to pay his debt to that man, and he died. Right? That was, those are Socrates' last words, cool and calm, going philosophy of immortality, cracking jokes, completely calm and unaffected by his impending death. And we have countless other examples of this, especially from early church history and, and the martyrs. People being burned alive and crucified and ripped apart by wild beasts. Some of them just preaching the gospel with their last breath. One guy, as he's being consumed by the flames, is preaching to others, warning them of the flames to come and how much worse they will be than the flames that were literally burning him alive. Right? What is going on? Right? We have countless examples of thousands of other people dying significantly better than Jesus died. Why? Why did they die so well and here we see Jesus not dying so well? And the only possible answer is that Jesus is facing something that none of these other people face. Jesus is facing something here that is far worse than physical death. And what is that something? Well, his prayer in verse 36 tells us. Look in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What cup? Right? What, is, what is this cup? Well, remember last week at the Passover supper. The Passover still today is divided by four very important and very symbolic cups of wine. So remember, in the middle of the supper, when Jesus holds up a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, remember, it's the third cup of that supper. You remember what that cup was? 
Well, it's from Exodus 6, 6. It's God's promise where he says in Exodus 6, 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Redemption through judgment. Right? Socrates gladly took the cup containing his death and he drained it to the last drop. Jesus is here presented with his cup and he stumbles. What was this cup that he so desperately wanted taken from him? Well, it was the cup of the wrath of God. A few verses. Isaiah 51, 22. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath. Ezekiel 23, 33 talks about the cup of horror and desolation. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Right? In the garden, Jesus here gets his first taste of what he was about to experience. For the first time in all of eternity, he faced not the perfect love and community of God, but the wrath and the rejection of God. Listen to the words of the great 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. He writes, In the garden, Jesus then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was about to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Another commentator named William Lane writes, Jesus came to be with the Father in his hour of need for an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Keller says that since, since God is the source of all love and all life and all coherence, and since sin is a turning away from God to be our own Savior and Lord, well, then the natural result, consequence of our sin, the absolutely fair and just judgment on sin, is exclusion from the source of all light and love and coherence. Right? Jesus began to experience that in the garden. He is beginning to experience that spiritual darkness, the cosmic infinite disintegration that we call hell, of which the metaphors in the Bible, the flames and the worms and the darkness, are nothing compared to the reality. Jesus began to experience that, and he staggered. In the garden, Jesus began to experience for the first time the wrath and the rejection of God, and it almost killed him. And what's interesting is we often tend to ignore that Mark's description of Jesus' reaction in the garden is much more pained and aggrieved than his description of Jesus' reaction to the physical suffering and the cross. Right? Jesus reacts to that much better than he reacts here in the garden. And that's honestly why I'm, I'm fairly uncomfortable with, with, with visual accounts of the death of Jesus, like the movie um, The Passion of the Christ. Right? I, I never saw it, but I hear that the depiction of the crucifixion was brutally graphic. Doesn't that make sense? Because crucifixion was brutally Violent. It was a terrible way to die. But here's the thing. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people died that exact same physical death. Right? Many people died worse deaths than Jesus. Right? I don't like these movies because it implies that the death of Jesus was so terrible because of how physically um, brutal it was. Wrong. 
Again, thousands died that exact same death. That is not the point of what is going on here. Yes, it's amazing that he um, submitted himself um, to that um, for you. But again, thousands of people have gone through that and experienced that. The physical wasn't the point. And that's all that the movies can portray. The physical wasn't the point. Yes, it was terrible, but that would not have even have begun to register compared to what Jesus was experiencing spiritually. And that begins here in the garden. Right? I can't begin to describe. Um, and we cannot even begin to understand um, what Jesus is going through in these moments. He is, in this moment, experiencing the full wrath of God for the countless millions of sins of the millions of people that he was dying for. Right? The weight of, of the sins of each individual was so great that that individual couldn't even pay that debt off with an eternity in hell. And Jesus is facing all of that at once on him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one of the most fantastic verses in the Bible. Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is fascinating. That is amazing. That is what is beginning to happen in the garden. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, perfect in holiness and purity, the sinless, spotless one, was made to be sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is too pure to even look on evil. But here is Jesus, God, and he is being made to be sin. The whole weight of sin for those that he died for was placed on his back in that moment. Isaiah 53 says, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. The iniquity of every single person he was dying for was laid on him. An unimaginable burden. And listen, that would have been bad enough. God so hates sin. The idea of Jesus being made to be sin just kind of blows our minds. That doesn't, that make, doesn't make sense. But, but that's not even the worst of it. Romans 1. Right? We're all sinners. That's, that's not good in and of itself. But listen, the sin necessarily isn't the problem. The real problem comes in verse 18. Right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right? Our real problem is the wrath of God. Right? Sin justly brings God's wrath. Crime demands payment. There must be justice. And that is what Christ is experiencing in the garden. The full fury of the wrath of God against our sin. That is why he is so distraught. Almost to the point of death. It's the cup. It's God's wrath revealed against sin. And listen, there are two primary moments in history where that wrath is revealed. And it is here in the garden and on the cross, and then it is still to come at the last judgment when Christ returns. Either Christ took the wrath for you then, or you will take it for yourself here in the future. Right? Look back at verse 36. He is so distraught, so distraught that God himself the very mission, the very reason he has come is to die for sinners. But he is so distraught that he asks God to take the cup from him. Surely there must be another way. But then look at what he says. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He gets a taste. He gets a vision of the horrors that are to come. And it staggers him. It knocks him to the ground. 
but it gets back up off the mat, determined and resolved. He has been victorious. This is a decisive moment in history right here. Right? He looks at it, he sees it, he experiences it, and then he still chooses it. Right? This is where the decision happens. It's, 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 it's basically finished at this point. He's, he's in. He, he's done. He, he has survived the, the, the test. He has survived the temptation. He is ready to drain the cup for us. He's had a glimpse, but he still goes. Why? What? Why did this have to happen? Why did God um, kind of give him this, this picture in the garden? Why the garden not just kind of right to the cross? Jonathan Edwards, one more time. He says, there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. That he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And second, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said, Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great, it was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. This was given to him in his agony. God showed him how terrible um, what was coming. Uh, and it's something, again, that we cannot begin to comprehend. Christ sees it, he tastes it, he starts to experience it, and he still chooses to experience the wrath of God and the separation from God for the sake of his enemies, for sinners like you and like me. He truly was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But that's not all that he was. He was also despised and rejected by men. Remember the abandonment of Jesus. He predicted it last week as they were walking to the garden and they all adamantly denied it. But in the garden, we begin to get a foretaste of what's coming, right? He tells them in verse 34, hey, remain here and watch. In verse 38, he says, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. But three times, what do they do? Right? They sleep. He is experiencing cosmic anguish. The battle for their very souls, for creation, is going on just yards away from them. And they can do nothing but sleep. He had just warned them in the previous chapter multiple times about staying awake and about being spiritually ready and aware. But they do not heed the warning. They slept. Right? The rejection had already begun by his own disciples. And then we get to verse 41. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. He has, he has survived. Not my will, but your be done. And he says, uh, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And up walks Judas. He's practically got an army in tow with him. One of the Gospels tells us that there's a Roman cohort with him. That could be upwards of like five or six hundred soldiers. We don't know how many are there, but it was, it was probably an army. And it's dark, right? It would be hard to recognize who was who. So they, they, they've got a plan, right? They, they've got a signal, and it's, it's a kiss. Right? Judas takes what is supposed to be a sign of respect and friendship and intimacy, and he uses it as a sign of hatred, betrayal, and rejection. One man betrays with a kiss. He's rejected by Judas. Judas, who was sent by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. Remember, these four groups were guys that could never get along and could never agree on anything except Jesus. They all despised him for different reasons. They, they so hated him that they had been actively working for years to get him killed. They so hated what he was teaching that they would do whatever it took to silence him. 
And don't miss that. Because if you ever really kind of wonder, hey, why, why, they, why they hate Jesus so much, right? No one despises Jesus anymore. Nobody hates Jesus. Even Muslim people, even non-Christians, even atheists, no one's offended by Jesus anymore. Everybody kind of likes meek and mild, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, Jesus. Oh, you know, he had some really nice, um, good things to teach. Why did they so despise him when most people today, even non-Christians, people who don't believe, kind of respect and appreciate him today? Well, because they actually understood what he was teaching and claiming. And most of us today honestly do not. Right? And that's why I've said before that I at least understand the Pharisees' position. Right? It makes logical sense. It makes a whole lot more sense than the position that most of us take, which is kind of mild interest or general apathy, claiming to believe but not actually living like we do. No, these guys at least recognized what he was claiming, that he was God, that he was the great I am, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that there is salvation in no one else, that he is the forgiveness of sins, that he is the fulfillment of the whole law, that he is the true and better temple, the true and better Moses, that everything in the Old Testament pointed to and was about him. No wonder they hated him. They at least listened to him and understood what he was saying, and they hated him for it. He so upset what was important to them, their entire way of life, their entire way of salvation through their own goodness, that they had to kill him. He was a revolutionary. Right? He, he stood opposed to all forms of man-made religion, and he preached a gospel that was utterly different. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't keep all the rules. You can't follow the law well enough. You can't be good enough to get to God. I have to do it for you. And they killed him. Right? They hated him because they understood him. And that at least makes sense. Because the only two reasonable responses to Jesus, based upon his claims about who he was and what he did, are to either love him or hate him. Right? He is either who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do, and in that case, you should just fall down at his feet in worship, begging for his mercy, devoting your life to him. Or he was just a liar and a crazy person, and you should hate him and completely disregard him. It's one or the other. At least choose one. Right? Get off the fence. Right? Look at what is happening in this garden. Right? Does this have any effect on your life. Do you really believe God in the garden? God himself coming to suffer and die for sinners. Because if you do, you should love him. Right? You've got to love him or hate him. Those are the only two responses that make sense. But it's easy to at least be disgusted by the actions of the religious authorities. And it's easy to vilify Judas and kind of focus on him. Yes, what he did was despicable. Jesus says that it would have been better for him to have never been born. But don't forget the other 11. Right? They have all just had their feet washed by Jesus. They have all been intimately taught by Jesus. They just dined with him. They have just drank from his cup. They have all just sworn their allegiance to him. Uh, that they promised that they will stand by him and they would die rather than abandon him. But they all fall away. And in verse 50 we read, and they all left him and Led, rejected by men, even his closest friends, down to the very last one. 
And Mark doubly emphasizes this with this kind of weird little tack on at the end of our passage. Did you look at, did you notice verses 51 and 52, right? It's like, what, what's going on here, right? There's this mysterious, unnamed young man trying to, trying to follow along, but they, they apparently see him, they seized him by the cloak, he somehow kind of worms his way out, and he just goes running off into the darkness completely naked. What in the world, right? Why is that there in the middle of this scene? Well, most people think that this young man is actually Mark. Right? This is Mark anonymously writing himself into the story, making it clear that even Mark abandoned his Lord in his time of need. But there's no way to, to know that for sure. The, the point simply of these last two verses is just to, again, kind of re-emphasize the utter rejection and abandonment by men. Even this anonymous, unnamed sympathizer, the one person who seemed like he was willing to follow, even he ended up fleeing from Jesus. Absolutely everyone left. No one remained. Jesus has already gotten the first taste of rejection and abandonment by God, and he has now been rejected and abandoned by man. He is utterly alone. Everything that is to come in these next few hours, he faces alone. He was truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected by men. But it is precisely because he is those two things that he is also our third thing, that he is the solution to suffering. Jesus is experiencing the garden of suffering that we can never understand. He experiences this, this cosmic suffering and separation so that we don't have to. But that does not mean that we don't experience suffering, and sometimes great suffering. Some of you already have. Some of you may be experiencing it right now. And basically all of us will at some point in time experience great suffering. And it can be devastating. And it can be confusing and lonely. There is great evil and suffering in this world. And many people try and take that fact and argue from it that God cannot exist. Or at least he cannot be all good and all powerful. Because what? come on, if he was, right, wouldn't he take care of this? This is called the, the problem of evil or, or suffering. The existence of suffering to some seems to imply that God doesn't exist. Or if you've never wrestled with the intellectual problem of evil, every single one of us have personally wrestled um, with an experience of evil and suffering. Why, God? <laughs> Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this? What could be the purpose? And it is there, in the middle of those moments, that the Garden of Gethsemane is so important. Right? I could sit up here um, and pontificate and, and philosophize and give you all kinds of intellectual explanations um, for the existence of evil. Right? I could run through the list of all the, the possible answers, but ultimately, that will not help you in the midst of suffering. You know what will help you in the midst of suffering? God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, suffering there alongside you, but not just beside you, but in the garden for you. Right? People have tried and used the problem of evil against Christianity, but it, just, it doesn't work. Right? They don't have a good explanation for evil either. When something truly wicked like 9-11 happens, they have no resources. They only have categories for dealing with, with true and real evil like that. But we do. And I actually think that the existence of evil and suffering is great evidence for God and the gospel. Sin and our rejection of God is the only thing that makes sense of what we are witnessing here in our world. 
But listen, I'm not going to stand here and give you a 100% airtight argument for why God allows evil. I don't know the reason behind every personal experience with suffering. But here's what I do know. And here's what Christianity offers that nothing else does. God in the garden. It is only in Christianity that you get God himself coming down and submitting himself to the same evil and suffering that we all experience. Why? For us. So whatever the reason for evil and suffering is, we can at least know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us, and it cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to us that Jesus here plunges himself into the greatest depths of suffering. And he does it for us. So maybe we cannot grasp all of God's purposes. And listen, we, we should expect that, right? He's God and we are not. If I can understand everything that he is doing, we're, we're in trouble, right? But, but through the garden and through the cross, we can know his love. And that is ultimately what you need in the midst of suffering. Look how much he cares. Look at what he has gone through to save you. Look how much your salvation costs him. It is through the understanding of the immense suffering of Jesus in your place that you will then begin to kind of be empowered and enabled to, to um, endure whatever suffering that you are going to have to face. This is this quote from the lady that I was reading a book this week. She says, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything that we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, and the rejection by the Father? How will he not also graciously give us all things that he deems best and right? He has already given us the incomprehensible. Here in the garden and in the next morning on the cross, God proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is worthy of your trust. No matter what you are experiencing, God in the garden, God on the cross, that is the solution to suffering that you need. Now one more thing before we finish up. I want you to notice one other important thing. This is this example that Jesus gives us of how we are to react and to deal with suffering. What does he do? in the middle of unimaginable anguish. This is so important. What, what does he do? He, he prays. Right? Prayer is a critical part of our surviving suffering. Nothing signals our complete and utter dependence on God like prayer. Just by the very act of praying, you are implicitly admitting that you cannot do it, that you need help, and that you need God to intervene. Prayer is automatically a confession of your weakness and inability along with His power and His sovereignty. It's admitting your need and confessing His power. And there is nothing we need to do more than that in the midst of terrible suffering. We must cry out to God like Jesus does. If He needed to depend on God the Father in prayer, how much more then do we need do we presume that we do not need something that Jesus needed? Right? How, how arrogant are we to ignore something that Jesus found so important? Are you suffering? Right? Then you need to be praying. Right? Suffering shows that you are not in control, 
right? Prayer is your admitting to that fact, right? Prayer is, uh, is it's humility, and it is to the humble that God gives grace who need Him in the midst of suffering. So what's ironic is that the very thing that we tend to do in the midst of difficulty and suffering, which is to stop praying and stop reading the Word and stop fellowshipping, are the very things that we most need in the midst of suffering. And again, I'll give another plug for the local church. That's why you need the church. It's just it's why you can't do it. You can't do it alone. You can't. Right? I'm going to go through a period where I just don't understand. You're going to go through a period where you don't understand. And our job as the church is to support each other in those periods. You need each other. Right? You've got to have the church. You need prayer. You need the word. And you need fellowship in the midst of suffering. And that's when you need it the most. Right? Let Christ be your example. Keller, one more time. He points out some really, really um, important parallels um, between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, this, this is really good. Right? In each of these, we have an Adam. Right? We have the first Adam, and we have what Paul calls the second Adam. In each of these, we have a tree. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we have the cross. And in each of these, we have a decision. We have a choice to obey or to not obey. And to the first Adam thousands of years ago, to the first Adam, God says, Obey me about the tree, and, uh, and you will absolutely live and be blessed. Obey me about the tree, and you will live. And what happens? He doesn't. He disobeys, and we all follow suit. But it is that failure, and our subsequent failure over and over again, it is that failure in the first garden that requires a second Adam in the second garden with a second tree and a second choice. Here in this garden, on that fateful morning, God says to Jesus, Obey me about that tree, and I will absolutely crush you. And he gives him a taste of it. That's what Jesus sees. That's what the cup is. It is the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he sees it, and he obeys. And he takes the cup. He gets a taste, and then he takes the tree and everything that comes with it. And the sinless, spotless one is made to be sin. And he bears it all in our place. He takes the full force of God's wrath against sin, and he drinks it to the last drop. It's gone. Therefore, then, if you are in Christ, there is no wrath. It's gone. It is utterly gone. He's done it all. It is finished. And that is the good news. There's wrath. Either he's going to pay for it, or you're going to pay for it. And the good news is that he's done it all, even when you didn't deserve it. Right? Man saw it, right? What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, there is no more wrath remaining because Christ took it all in that moment and on that cross. Lord, he paid the infinite death, that we, the infinite price that we could only pay with an eternity in hell. And he takes it and he bears it and he pays all of it in our place. Father, he takes death and separation and punishment and he gives us life and reconciliation and blessing. Father, the great exchange. Father, we thank you 
for giving us this, this uncomfortably painful glimpse into the garden, behind the curtain, into, into the heart and mind of Jesus and what He was experiencing. Father, we thank You for giving Him this taste, Father, so He saw it and He experienced it and He still chose it. Father, He still went to the cross and experienced all that, Father, and He did it for sinners, Lord. Father, I just, I, I plead and I, and I beg You, Father, to send Your Spirit on us here in this place. Father, I can't convince anyone of the reality of this. I can't convince anyone of the urgency of what is happening in that garden, Lord. But I know that you can, um, Lord, and I ask that you would. Father, we thank you so much um, for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for how flippantly we, we treat what he has done um, for us. Um, Lord. I pray that you would shape us and change us and transform us, Lord, and set us on fire. Um, with the good news of the gospel, Lord, that we would be able to then go out um, in your name and find other suffering sinners, Lord, and tell them the good news of, of God in the garden, God on the cross, um, suffering for sinners. Father, we thank you uh, for everything. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.